kids benefit from structure if they know that someone other than them is responsible for paying attention to boundaries and making things that there's order and organization. But we also don't want to be all command and control because when people are overly stern or overly harsh or over emotionally reactive, it really makes them less effective as parents or as leaders. What's up, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and welcome to episode 59 of Be More Well. This week, I'll be catching up with author and speaker Ned Johnson. Now, before we jump in, for those of you that may be listening for the first time, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing part of your day with us. I really hope that you like what you hear and you'll come back for more. If you've been listening to Be More Well, thank you again. I always appreciate your support. If you guys do like what you hear today, I'd appreciate it if you left a rating and review. That always helps the algorithms introduce new people to the show. For most of the interviews that I do, I go in pretty blind. I don't know these people, and I have no idea what they're going to be like when there's a microphone in front of them. Most people are fine, uh, but some really just not prepared for it. And that's also okay. I get that. It's not for everyone. But then you've got the people that really stand out among the rest. Today's guest is like that. He just had such an intoxicating energy. And it sometimes I almost thought he was auditioning to be the voice of a cartoon character. I think you'll uh, you'll see what I mean when you listen to the conversation. But I loved every second of it. I'm speaking today with author and speaker Ned Johnson. Ned is the founder of Prep Matters, an educational company providing academic tutoring, educational planning, and standardized test prep. He spent nearly 30 years working with more than 40,000 students from a variety of things. Uh, Ned's also a writer, penning articles for major publications across the world, and the very popular book, The Self-Driven Child. Now, he's back with a new book that has parents and educators talking. This book is called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. I've been doing a lot more parenting-related interviews recently. You've probably noticed that. And that's likely because I'm a parent now. I want to learn as much as I can to help with how I raise my daughter. But it's not just for parents, this book. All adults deal with kids at some point. This can definitely help with a lot of those interactions. I also think there's a lot in this book that can help us not only with kids, but also with each other. There's some psychology in here that I know can help me in the workplace. And I think we could all use a little assistance with the way that we interact with each other these days. All right, let's get into the conversation. But first, please be sure to subscribe to Be More Well on whatever platform you're listening on right now. That way you'll be notified of all future episodes. I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and review as well. That helps new people to be introduced to Be More Well. And feel free to find us on Instagram at Be More Well Podcast. How's it going, Ned? It's going great. And you, Jeff? I am uh, I'm doing okay. My dog, my dog stepped on one of the legs of my tripod so if you happen to see the camera just slowly tilting in one direction it's because i'll just I'm, do that with you yeah i'm just, propping just it up slide with you <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll see i may have to order a new one here i'm like thanks a lot dog <laughs> duct tape yeah right. i assume i assume it's a larger than rather than smaller dog uh yes it is a 90 pound husky so yeah when <sighs> when he decides he's going to step on something it's it's over yeah do they all have those blue, those wonderful blue eyes? So we have two Huskies. Uh, one of them is a little bit smaller, and she does. Uh, but our nice. big guy, he's a little bit of a mix. He's like 75% Husky, and the other 25% is a mix. So he does not have the – He both of his eyes are blue, so it's not one and one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ned, it's great to talk to you. I uh, I do a little bit of research before I talk to people, just so I kind of know what I'm getting myself into. Because every author, every you know guest is a little bit different. I've been 
very much looking forward to this conversation. Oh, good. Well, as am I. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the book is What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. And, and I want to just go back a little bit here, Ned, because I saw an article that you wrote. I want to say it was near the beginning of the pandemic, but my time is a little mm. bit off. Uh, but you were talking about how this could be a time when kids could really get some real-life education about dealing with things like stress and other aspects. And, and I wonder, now that we've been through a little bit of this, how do you feel people have done with that? Well, it's a great question, Jeff. I mean, and the one important thing to know is that um, it's uneven, right? And part of it is some of us have had some challenges. Some of us had a lot. Some of us are going to come out of this more zone and some people a little, a little bit more damaged, I suppose. But the basic point of that article was that, you know, looking for silver linings, what we anticipate to be a dis difficult time. Is it, would it be possible, is it possible for us to, and our kids more importantly, to do, become more resilient out of this adversity that we're facing? And this is really rooted in brain science. There, there, there's a wonderful, uh, wonderful researcher named Stephen Mayer who did all this work early on about what's called learned helplessness. And so classically, they had dogs in cages, they shocked them, and then they'd open the cage eventually, and then the dogs would just stay there and, and, and be mistreated. And so initially, they thought it was that these dogs learned to be helpless. He and his, uh, and his research colleague did a paper called Learned Helplessness at 50. What did we learn and what do we miss? And he said, the big miss was this. It wasn't that those animals learned to be helpless, but rather that they failed to learn a sense of control. Mm -hmm. And that sense of control is actually what our first book, The Self-Driven Child, was all about. And so in the paradigm experiment they had, they had two rats in a cage and, and they shocked them. Uh, and it wasn't gonna kill them, but they sure didn't like it. And rat A had a little wheel that he could spin and it would attenuate or stop the shock. And rat B had a wheel that he spun and nothing happened. So rat A, when he could spin the wheel, he knew the shock was coming, he'd spin the wheel and he'd get this massive activation in the left prefrontal cortex and it would regulate the rest of the brain, including the stress reaction. And and, the, and he put things into perspective, and th this is what this is what coping looks like at a neurological level. So it's the experience of adversity of challenge with the ability to do something about it, to feel that I did something to help me get through this and have it be okay enough that builds emotional resilience. Interestingly, Rat B, they did this experiment where they yoked the two of them and Rat A spun the wheel and saved himself and Rat B. And I'm sure that brother Rat B was grateful as all get out. Oh, brother, you have saved me yet again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But he ended up being a mess because he had the experience of forever being the damsel in distress in someone else's video game, never the epic hero, right, who could save himself. And so this is a really tricky dance for us as parents because when our kids are having a hard time, we don't want them to drown. We don't want them to be wiped out. We want to help them. And so really nice uh, kind of formula for this is that adversity plus support equals resilience. Adversity plus saving Disaster, adverse, and of course, adversity plus neglect, you know, uh, people sure. are estranged from their, their parents as, as, as adults. Well, it's interesting. My wife is a teacher at a middle school, so maybe I've seen a, a little bit of a different mm -hmm. aspect than a lot of people have. But it's amazing to me how much the kids do feed off of parents. And in this time that we've been in, so many parents have such negative views about the situation that it's hard almost for the kids to see that silver lining where, yeah, you know what? Okay, I'm going to come out of this better. I'm going to come out of this with different skills than I would have had before. Well, no, that's exactly right. And, and, and certainly little, you know, all kids start out 
scrutinizing the faces of their parents or their caregivers for messages of, is this going to be okay? Or is this a disaster, right? And so we're not pretending that this is easy. What we're suggesting, though, is that we don't want to be continually conveying messages of fear, but rather ones of courage. And we know that courage doesn't exist in the absence of challenge or of things that are scary. It's, it's, it's recognizing that this is hard and that we're going to move forward. And I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but about six weeks ago, my, uh, my wife, our 19-year-old, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Fortunately, well-mannered kid that he is, he chose the one that seems to be most amenable to, to, to treatment. So hopefully he's going to come out of this well enough. And person after person, my wife says, people keep asking me, how, how are you so calm through this? And part of it is that we take really seriously the things that help us keep our level of stress lower so that we can be helpful to our kids when they need us. And they don't need us all the time because they're teenagers now. And, and for both of us, we practice what's called transcendental meditation, which is just a, it's a technique to kind of pull stress out of your system. And the, the broader message that I take from this is that we need, if, if we don't have ways, whether it's sleep or spending time with people who really, who really nurture us or faith or, or religion, you know, mantras, whatever it happens to be, if we don't have methods to pull more stress out of our systems, our bodies, our brains, our families, then we bring into the system, oh, we get really bad outcomes. And so, yeah, it's hard for parents when their kids are having a hard time, but in many ways, if they can work on lowering their own stress, they're going to be better able to provide that support without immediately jumping in to rescue their kids and missing this opportunity for kids to develop the sense of what they can do for themselves. What I keep thinking of, and, and maybe it's similar, but on a different level, I, I have an eight month old daughter um, <laughs> and I keep thinking of that, that saying, and I do this with her, you know, when she, she's trying to stand, when she falls, if a parent comes over like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, are you okay? The kid will start crying because they think, okay, something has happened, something's wrong. I usually laugh it off or I just, you know, walk over and just make sure she actually is okay, you know, from yep. to keep an eye on her. And and we don't tend to have as many major blow-ups when things like that happen. And maybe I'm wrong, but I, I kind of feel like it's a very similar thing. My level of calm about a situation is impacting her level of reaction. You couldn't have said it better. I mean, it's terrific. I mean, when she falls down, you go, oh, you went boom, right? right? And you give her a big, a big smile of everything's okay. Yeah. And and this is part of learning to walk. You start by by stumbling. Where if, oh my gosh, you know, it's almost giving the message like I've done something wrong. I should be them. This must be a scary thing as opposed to a natural part of learning to walk. I mean, you probably don't fall down. I don't feel like I fall on my keister that often, but I suspect I did in the past. <laughs> I don't know. I went down the stairs pretty hard the other day, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I feel like you and I are, are probably pretty close in age, so uh, maybe you'll understand where I'm going with this. But when I'm reading this book and I'm going through a lot of the, the tactics, it all makes perfect sense, right? But when I'm reading it, I'm thinking back to when I was a child and what I was seeing from other parents. And so many of the tactics that you talk about it seems to me like the things that I maybe would have brushed off as a kid, like, oh, look at those hippies over there with their being so cool and calm with their kids. Because I came from such a, a strict, you know, authoritarian household that to mm -hmm. me, that was normal. And then I'm seeing everybody else and I'm like, oh, these, you know, hippie dippy people over here, they're all love and happiness and treating each other <laughs> with respect. And it's just so funny to read it. I'm like, this is how I want to operate with my kid. I was like, but why did I judge it so hard when I was younger? <laughs> Well, and 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 it's a great point, Jeff. And the middle ground in there, you, you know, there's sort of the lazy fair. It's all groovy, man. Do whatever you want. Don't care at all, right? And the authoritarian. It's my way the highway, and you must do this, right? The in-between space is what we know as authoritative parenting, and so it's effectively high love 
and high discipline because structure and order, but done in ways that are both, both, both firm and kind, right? And we tend to be either really firm and or overly kind, do whatever you want. Kids benefit from structure if they know that someone other than them is responsible for paying attention to boundaries and making things that there's order and organization. But we also don't want to be all command and control because as you described before, you know, like your daughter, right? If we are, if when, when people are overly stern or overly harsh or over emotionally reactive, it really makes them less effective as parents or as leaders. Because when we're doing that, the prefrontal cortex, the decision-making plan, and how do I figure this thing out? How do I put this into perspective? How do I talk myself down? Part of the brain kind of goes sideways, right? I mean, if, if you had your parent or spouse or work, why did you do that, right? Oh my gosh, you can't come up with any explanation. But, 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 but. And so if we really want to help kids, including asking questions like, well, what went on there? We don't want to hurl accusations at them with a question mark at the end. We actually want to do this in spirit of, I have concerns about this, but I want to work with you. You know, in our, in our book, we talk about the idea of a parent as a parent as consultant, not the boss, not the manager, not telling kids what to do, not saving them all the time, but say, I'm here to help. I got some ideas. Would you like to hear them? And it's, it's hard. It's much easier to be loosey-goosey, do whatever you want. And it's all on you, pal, or command and control. That in-between space, it's harder to do, but, it, but 60 years of research have shown that this authoritative parenting is absolutely the best model. And if people wonder, well, how do I be authoritative? Honest to gosh, you already have natural authority because you're bigger, you're taller, you have more experience, you got a credit card for goodness sakes, you already have more authority. But we wanna be kind of working with our kids rather than kind of working on them. Yeah, it kind of seems like a mixture of like sort of the the strict authoritarian thing and like the people that used to say, I just want to be best friends with my kids. You know, you can't really be best friends with your kids because they'll end up running all over you at some point. And you and it's hard to be the authoritarian because it, it's just, I don't know, it's tough to be the angry, strict person all the time. But there is that middle ground where if you just have an open conversation with your child, then that seems to be the better way to go. Well, I think that's exactly right. And one, you'd sure hope to think, I mean, if you think back to yourself as a teen, if your best friend was your mom, your dad, probably something was going a little wrong because you're naturally supposed to make friends with people outside of the household, sure. right? That doesn't mean we don't have great relationship with our parents. And, and for me, because my kids, my oldest is now 19, I started thinking about this probably 10 years ago, Jeff, that I was going to have a longer relationship with my kids as adults than with my kids as kids, I mean, so long as everything goes right. And so it's never too early to start talking with kids in ways that are respectful and building that foundation for having a, having a really, um, a relationship that's built in mutual respect where we have influence over our kids rather than trying to have power over them. There was an interesting article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, the writer David Brooke, David Brooks is writing about all of these people who are estranged from a member of their family, including a parent, something like 20% of American adults are estranged from one or both parents, mm. 27%. And you thought, golly, how painful that is for everyone. And particularly the parent think, my gosh, I did everything. What happened here? And I, and, and so much of the, the, I, the, the logic behind our book, what do you say is not just the what, but the how, because again, you have advice and wisdom you want your, your daughter to hear. I know I do with my kids and all parents do. But when we do this, when we can change the energy, we can change the how, it doesn't force our kids to run away from us, but rather than to have approach behavior, we say, I can bring these problems to my parents and they don't, you know, don't blow up at me. They don't, you know, kind of go to pieces. They hang with me and help me figure through these things that are hard for me to get through. 
I actually found, and I'm glad you just said that because it segues in. I found while I was reading it, instead of thinking a lot about what I would do to my daughter because she's eight months old, so I still have a little ways to go before I really have to think about how we're having conversations. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I thought a lot about my childhood, and uh, there, you know, I'm I'm fine with my parents now. We have a great relationship, but there was a lot of resentment uh, for a little mm-hmm. while as I was getting through my 20s, you know, early 20s, late teens. Uh, and I, I kept thinking about some of the things you were saying, like if my parents had just, instead of coming down with the the iron fist, if they had said, here's why we can't do this, or here's why this is upsetting, or here's, if there was more of an explanation, there was more of a dialogue, more of a conversation, I don't think I would have had that resentment. I mean, I, sure, I wouldn't have liked to not be able to do all of the things that I wanted to do, but every kid has to say no at some point. You know, you can't do everything. So I get there are boundaries, but I, I think, that would have been such an easier way for me to understand why I was getting grounded all the time, why I couldn't do the things that I loved. And it was, I don't, I don't know. That's, it, that's how I was reacting, reading the book in a lot of ways. Well, and I think that's, and I think a lot of us have had that experience. And, and one of the, the unfortunate things that happens then is even if you're, let's just pretend that your parents were right about all the things that you should be doing because they were doing it with an iron fist. There's a decent chance that you spent a lot of your teenage years resisting what was in your own best interest, just because you're like, doggone it, right? You know, we, we talk about in both books, what, a model for autonomous or intrinsic motivation, what's called self-determination theory. And it's a model of, of people wanting to do things. So, so, you know, you will want your daughter, just like I want my kids. I want them to work hard in school. I want them to work hard at things that matter to them. I want, to, I want them to, to work hard at, you know, being good people. But more importantly than wanting them to do these things, I would really like them to want to want to do these things. You know, not just doing it because I said to, but 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 it's it's in them to say this is important. To, you know, to treat people kindly. It's important to be responsible. It's important to me to do well in school. And so this model of intrinsic motivation motivation of how how do we get kids to to want to do things or any of us is we need we have three core psychological needs. One, we need to feel competent, and we do that better when people don't do things for us that we can do for ourselves, even if it's messy. Two, a sense of relatedness or connection. And three, a sense of autonomy. And our first book, The Self-Driven Child, is really about the importance of autonomy. One, for stress regulation of I'm in control. There's something I can do in this hard situation, but also for motivation. And so when parents say things like, shouldn't you be doing homework? You should be doing this. You know, we're really undermining all three of these because it's basically like, Jeff, you're an idiot because you're not doing this like I told you, right? You sure don't feel connected, right? And I'm undermining your autonomy. And so then it's hard for you to move in the direction of doing the thing that I want you to do, because I've put up such a wall between the two of us. There's your way, idiot, and there's my way, the right way. Well, you have to eat a lot of crow to come over and do it my way, where if you just say, you know, listen, I have some concerns about how you're doing this. Can I offer you some advice? Because this, I, I, I'd love you to consider this perspective on it. Well, you may still say no. But it's a lot more likely that the defensiveness comes down and you're, and you're willing to at least listen to it because I've re- approached you in a way that honors your autonomy and our relationship. If you, of course, say no, right? Well, then I'll force it down your throat. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> I mean, but, but, but honest to gosh, if, you, if I push it and force it on you, you're not really going to hear it anyway because that's it's just kind of how brains work. I, mean, I just don't know anyone who would ask me, Jeff, would you like my advice on this? And you say no, and then ram it down your throat. Right. You're not going to thank me for it. Right. Of course, you're not going to love that. I, I think, too, sometimes uh, you you talk about a story in here about a young woman. I think it was a young woman who got nearly a perfect score on the SATs and was upset about it. 
because <laughs> the score was not perfect. And there was this element of like perfection in her mind that she had this goal and, and you know, it has to come from somewhere, but she was so determined to be perfect, even though honestly what she did was more than perfect to getting the score uh, that <sighs> she did. And, and that's so, it's so hard. And I, I hear so many times from younger people now that that's what they have to do. And maybe it's the system that we've developed for secondary education where it just becomes so much more difficult and you have to build resumes to get to college as opposed to me. I just filled out an application and thankfully somebody accepted <laughs> me. But it's it's wild the kind of pressure that we do put on these kids to try to take things to the next level. Well, and you know, and 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 to be fair, there are a lot of parents who say, "Look, I'm really not pushing my kid. She gets all these messages from everywhere else," which I think I think very much can be true because our kids are influenced by all the ecosystems in which they swim. But one of the things, so so this girl was super bright and super academic, and like you should describe, got a 1590 out of 1600, made a huge increase, and then bursts into tears. And I just looked at him like, you know. <laughs> you're a crack addict. And she looked at me like, what? And I said, you've had 438 consecutive A's. And if you got a C, you burst into tears. And she looked at me with all the fury of this little frame. She said, I would never get a C. And I tell students and they kind of laugh. I said, no, no, no. But here's the thing. It wasn't confidence. It wasn't swagger. It wasn't, oh, be gone with you, tutor boy. You do not know that of which you speak. <laughs> None of that. It's abject fear. And so this, this, these per perfectionistic drives are not born out of here's what I want. Here's what I want to achieve. It's fear of what if I don't, what if I don't achieve? And, and for Bill and for me, and, and, and keep in mind, I've spent 30 years helping kids prepare for standardized tests, do well in school, get into college, blah, blah, blah. That's my daytime gig. But even for me, I will submit, and Bill's a clinical neuropsychologist, that the most important outcome of high school is not where do you go to college. It's developing the brain that you're going to carry into adulthood, one that's intrinsically motivated, one that can handle bumps and bruises and, and setbacks and, 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 and tolerate stress because goodness knows there's enough of that in the, in the world. And we want in, in the grown up world, we want to be able to tolerate that. And we want to be able to push ourselves to pursue meaningful goals, not need other people to push us all the time. And so this perfectionism is really, it's fear-based thinking. And from our perspective, it must be that young people and Donna, our whole, our whole communities are pervaded with messages of be very, very afraid. Jeff, if you're not academic enough, you're never going to have a successful life. You know, you'll be in a, in a van down by the river, just, you know, and, and the hypervigilance and checking kids' grades. And it's just be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid all the time. And it's just... When you look at the statistics of people, you know, even at the most elite colleges and the and the mental health struggles of anxiety and depression, and and I and I want to be fair, I, I'm not wanting to single out this parent or that parent for being anxious because you're, we're all doing the best we can. Oh sure. And also that we find this, we go to Seattle and their kids in school refusal in second grade, the fifth grade boys in Dallas are overcome by stress of what if they don't do well enough on grades in fifth grade, they don't matter for college, right? And so we just feel that, that through our, when we can talk more effectively with kids and in, including ways that convey in a sort of a non-anxious presence, it's the salve again, against the stress in real life to pull some of it out. Because we want kids to be able to work hard you know, push themselves, but then fully recover. And, and that, if nothing else, we can make home a safe base. So even if the real world feels a bit like a war zone, home isn't that as well. This might be a loaded question. I'm going to throw it out yeah. there anyway. Um, I don't think anybody 
when they're growing up and they think about the future of potentially being a parent. I don't think anybody thinks to themselves, I really want to torture my kid when I get older. Like, I think they all want the best for their kid. You, you hear that common phrase, I'm not going to be like my parents. You know, there's a, so at one point though, something must shift because so many of us suck when it comes to turning things around and actually taking the reins and being the parent. I feel like we kind of lose the, maybe the idealism of what that was. I I don't know what it is, but it's, it's kind of interesting to see that people kind of revert back to a lot of those things. Well, yeah. And I I think that's fair. And I think part of it is we use the models that we have because of the models that we have, right? If if we knew a more effective way to do this, arguably we would do this. I mean, there's a great parent educator who read our first book, The Self-Driven Child, and said, this is a revolutionary approach to raising kids. And so if you haven't read this or heard from someone else who's giving you the method of, and you're like, ah, of course you revert to what did my mom, dad, what did my dad do? Because these things are just kind of wired into us. And also when we're stressed, there's a wonderful researcher named Sonia Lupian who, who says you can summarize what's stressful to people with the acronym NUTS. So N is novelty, new situations, first time with an eight-month-old, right? Unpredictability. I don't know if she's going to fall asleep in the next hour or, or, or at all tonight, right? T, threat, perceived threat, all the things that feel stressful to me and to my, to my family. And then S and low S is low sense of control. And Dr. Lupia makes the point that it's this low sense of control that's the most stressful thing that we can experience. If your daughter was really sick, but you know you can call the doctor or get this help, but if she's really sick and you have no idea what to do, you are out of your mind. And what happens is we tend to try to seek a greater sense of control because it lowers our own stress. But we can get this kind of zero-sum game, you know, between our kids where we seek more control because it makes us feel less stressed, but by taking more control and kind of their share of things, it increases their stress. Sure. Story in the book about a woman named Jessie Borelli who studies parental over control. This is so good. You can think about this when your daughter gets closer to that age. And they have like these 12 year old kids and they're doing a, a digital video game or a puzzle rather. And it looks really easy, but it's actually kind of devilishly hard. And they have their moms there. And the only instruction of the moms is don't give advice. Don't tell them what to do. Just, you know, you're doing great, sweetheart. Just kind of be there with them. But what they're really testing is the stress reaction of a parent when the kid is stressed. So the kid thinks this can be easy. I can look like a hotshot and make my mom real proud. Then it turns out it's not easy. And then they, it's, it's, then it's kind of frustrating. And then they get distressed. And the more distressed they get, the, their parent, their mom gets distressed. They both have heart rate monitors. You can see them going up. And to a one, all the moms eventually jump in and go, I know I'm not supposed to tell you, but what about to left? Turn it over there. Da, da, da. And they start, they break the only rule and start telling their kids how to do it. And when they do, because they've increased their sense of control, their heart rate goes down, their stress decreases and their kids goes up. Yeah. It's so and it's hard. <laughs> That is so interesting. Uh, there was a section in your book, too, uh, that I really liked where you uh, discussed trying to find what makes the kids happy or letting them find what makes them happy. And I just think like that that idea is not something that really existed when I was younger. And I love that that's there because that is something that I've said to myself from the second I knew we were having a baby was I want I want to assist if there's something that she wants to get into, whether it be soccer or playing the guitar or whatever it's going to be. I want to assist her in that, but I want her to be able to discover what it is that truly makes her happy. Well, that's right. And, there, and there, one of the points that we make in, in the books is that one of the single best things for the developing brain, 
apart from getting enough sleep, is to work harder and harder to get better and better at something that you like to do. So that can be sports, it can be music, it can be Legos. My 19 year old still loves Legos, you know, I mean, rock climbing, coding, fixing small engines, anything, when you work better and better to, to do that. And part of it is, these are the things that often lead to the, the things we do as adults. My kid's a music major second year in college, and he's been into goofing around with music for, for the longest time and gets in this, this flow experience of where you're just deeply engaged. It's high focus. It's high, it's high determination, high effort, low stress. And I'm guessing for you, Jeff, my hunch is that, you know, sounds like maybe, you know, you're academically, yeah, you know, a little, a little uneven going through school in ways that make your parents, you know, a little, a little frustrated. But my guess is you spent tons of time with friends and talking with friends and, 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 it's, and, and you probably they went to advice for advice on all this kind of thing, because you're so good at listening well and asking really good questions for which I'm really, really grateful. And you don't develop that in a chemistry class, but those listening skills, I mean, those are great for the work that you're doing. If you want to be on television, right? If you want to be a salesperson, if you want to be a teacher, a psychiatrist, a psychologist. And we, we make a profound mistake when we think that the only things that matter in childhood are things that are academic. Because yeah, we want all kids to work hard at school, but to act like that's the only thing that matters is wrongheaded because we need these other, these, these we, we develop successful lives by identifying what we already like to do and working harder and harder to get better at them. Well, Ned, I know I only have a couple minutes left with you. So first I will say thank you for the compliment. But what's funny about that is that I never got a B and I was a recluse uh, growing up. So it's kind of interesting that I was the complete opposite of what you just described that you thought that I might be. <laughs> interesting. I won't say I never got a B. I got a few Bs, but I never got anything lower than a B until I got to college. And when I got that first D, I was so terrified to go home. Like I did not want to go home for break. I was so nervous about what the reaction was going to be because I didn't have an A on my you know first semester college report card. So here's a question. Why were your parents so on you all the time? And do you think you would have done just as well academically if they hadn't been riding your tail the entire time? Tough to say. I think the answer to your question is yes, I probably would have because I did see a bigger picture uh, in the yeah. world, at least I, that I can remember that I can. Um, I, I don't I don't know. I, I don't I can't. I can't explain why there was such a, there were a lot of misinterpretations of who I was, I think, as a child. Mm. Um, I, I never did drugs, never drank, never did any of that growing up, but there was assumptions that I was. Like there was, it was very <laughs> interesting. So I don't know where it came from, but hey, you know what? We've moved on and we've uh, fear. gotten to the next level in our relationship. So we're okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm so glad. Ned, this book is great. There's so much interesting stuff in here, and I'm so excited that I have it now because, as I said, I've got an eight-month-old daughter, and I'm looking forward to learning as much as I can now so when she starts getting to those phases, I know how to properly uh, deal with them and, and work with her the best way possible. Uh, but where can people go if they want to find out more information about you or the book? Well, they can follow me at Ned Johnson. Uh, the website for our book is What Do You Say Book? com and and then all the usual places of your local independent bookstore that bezos guy i understand he sells some books on on, on some on he's a website yeah, he's got a few yeah. well that has been an absolute pleasure uh, good luck with everything and thank you so much for your time thank you so much Steph. it's a, it's a delight 
Big thank you to Ned Johnson for his time and his energy today. Ah, such a great conversation. I hope to have him back on the show again in the future. The book, What Do You Say, is available now, and you can find it wherever you get books. And thank you to all of you for listening. Quick show update. I have decided to make some changes with the, uh, I guess, branding, you'd call it, of the show. I'm going to roll those out pretty soon. So just thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to rate and review. Until next time, be well.